Welcome back to the Higma Collective Podcast. I'm Erica Makalak. One of the interesting things about starting a purpose-driven business has been trying to figure out what social entrepreneurship really means and what it means to want to do good in the world while still needing and wanting to make money. So in this episode, we're talking with J.P. Baker, who's a consultant in the not-for-profit sector or the social sector, which means that he works with all kinds of organizations wanting to do good work, thinking about both the meaning and the logistics behind what they want to do. He talks a lot about empathy, asking good questions, and cultivating abundance thinking and a spirit of collaboration. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for the Higma podcast. I'm Erica Makalak, and I'm very pleased to be here with J.P. Baker. J.P. is a planning consultant uh, ready to support organizations strategize the most effective ways to reach their goals. J.P. has extensive experience as a facilitator, consultant, researcher, and writer. As a consultant, he is sought out for his expertise in governance, organizational culture, strategy, process design, and change management. Over the past 10 years, he has done strategic planning with a variety of not-for-profit organizations and university departments and led the development of several community-wide plans. Outside these accomplishments, he also has experience in international language education. Specifically, JP taught English in South Korea, which he loved for both the people and the food. Vancouver and Victoria, where he ran Mingus Language Services. JP likes to bring his communication skills to his work, active listening, and articulating ideas. He also enjoys making broad connections between people, ideas, and organizations. He's currently a planning consultant at Vantage Point, which transforms not-for-profit leadership. JP, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Erica. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Um, I wonder if we could start by talking a little bit about your career journey and starting way back in your university days with with what you focused on at that point. Sure. Yeah, I studied English and Russian literature in university, um, which my father liked to call dishwashing and dish drying. Um, <laughs> but I had um, big plans in some ways for for what I would do with my education which in, in some senses means no plans. Um, I wanted to study what I was interested in, and, and I thought that sort of career-wise, things would fall into place afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, and what were the kinds of topics that interested you at that point when you were studying literature? You know, really, I was, I was interested in uh, how humanity and groups functioned. Um, and literature my, was, was my avenue to explore that. I had friends who studied sociology, and we used to argue about uh, who had a better understanding of humanity. Um, <laughs> I, I like to maintain my, my point that I think literature gives you a better understanding. I love that. And so, so you graduated, that, and then what came next? Um, well, I went overseas, actually. I was invited to go and teach English in South Korea by an old friend. Um, and I had never considered teaching before that time, um, but I decided to go for it. Um, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, I learned a lot in those first couple of years after university uh, as a teacher. Uh, I was able to apply you know, what I'd learned from from studying language, because besides literature, I studied a lot of languages. Um, so I was able to apply that understanding as a teacher. Um, but I also, I think, had certain skills um, 
that helped me move into management positions fairly quickly uh, in the schools that I worked in. Hmm. What kinds of skills, what do you think served you best? Well, I think that that understanding of people um, is important for leadership. And I think this is something that you see when you look at people in leadership positions in, in all areas of our society. Many of them have a liberal arts background. Um, they didn't necessarily study leadership, um, but I think they learned about people. Um, hmm. And I think that makes people well positioned for leadership. Interesting. So, so tell us what came next in your career? What led you to where you are now? Yeah, I had a few stops along the way. So after working in South Korea, I returned to Canada and I worked as an English teacher at a private college in Vancouver. And at a certain point, I realized that the ceiling felt fairly low uh, for me as a teacher. Um, and so I decided to strike out on my own um, and start my own school. So I started a private language school in Victoria with a partner, a fellow teacher. Hmm. And we learned about business basically on our own. Um, and how to start one. Uh, we leased a space in Victoria. We did our own renovations. It was a real DIY sort of project. And so how did that lead you to your role consulting with not-for-profits? Well, I on the side, because I think that as a self-employed person, you've always got your finger in a few different sort of pots of activity. I worked as a freelance writer, and this goes back to my time in South Korea, actually. I did corporate communications on the side. Hmm. Um, and so I was working as a freelance writer. When I left that business in Victoria, I did freelance writing full time. And I ended up having a lot of clients in the not-for-profit world. And eventually they asked me if I could do facilitation as well. Um, and because I had worked as a teacher, I felt that I had some of the skills necessary. Um, and so I started doing facilitation work and that just led me to, to learn more about the non-for-profit world. Um, and to expand my skills there. Uh, and so that led naturally to, to serving as a, as a nonprofit consultant. Hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that. For people who don't quite know what facilitation is, what is facilitation and what's the connection between facilitation and teaching? So facilitation is basically uh, running a good meeting and producing good outcomes from a meeting. On a very simple level, that's all it is. Uh, but on a more sort of complex level, it's uh, good meeting design. Um, you know, we've all had experience with meetings, both good and bad. Um, and some of that is a design issue. Um, it's also, you know, asking the right questions within a meeting to get people to generate the ideas, uh, helping them towards decisions. And that's sometimes difficult for groups to do on their own. So for certain processes like strategic planning, which is something I do a lot, it's very helpful for them to have an outside facilitator to lead that process uh, and to guide them through. I think it relates to teaching because I think a fundamental skill in facilitation is understanding group dynamics. So if you have a room full of people and you need them to go in generally the same direction, uh, how do you get them to do that? And, and so the, the ways of doing that are similar in teaching and facilitation. Hmm. And so from your perspective, what's the benefit of coming to that process from the outside? The benefits are that you actually um, are more free of bias than the people in the room, for one thing. Uh, I'm never going to say that anybody is completely free of bias, um, but certainly you don't have a stake at the table. So you can sort of play a more objective role as facilitator than someone in that process. 
Uh, and that's important when there are high stakes decisions to be made or sometimes too in high conflict situations. And although I'm not uh, a mediator, I'm not trained as a mediator, that's not really what I do. There's a lot of facilitation that involves some of the same things that mediation involves. Um, and so to have an outsider do those things is, is really helpful to groups. Um, there's also, I work a lot with nonprofit boards of directors and mm. those, are, those are groups of volunteers. It's very challenging for volunteers to hold each other accountable in the same way that maybe you would hold someone accountable in a work setting. Um, because people are volunteering their time and there's this idea that we need to be thankful for whatever they give, um, regardless of the quality or sometimes how it's done. Um, so that can be challenging. So, so facilitators benefit uh, groups there, but I also work with university departments and it's not the same as a nonprofit board of directors, but in the, in collegial governance, you have a, a group of, faculty members, it's very difficult for them to hold each other accountable too. And so they benefit a lot from outside facilitation as well. Interesting. Really interesting. So given that you've worked a lot with not-for-profit boards, I wonder if you could step back for a second. You worked with so many different kinds of not-for-profit organizations. Could you give us sort of uh, could you give us an anatomy of what a not-for-profit organization is and how it works at a high level? Yeah, I will do my best. Um, <laughs> you know, so basically a not-for-profit not organization is, is set up to achieve some kind of social purpose, whereas a for-profit organization is set up to achieve profits. And though there, that's, that's been complicated um, in positive ways in, in, the, in past years, um, there's a lot more social purpose business. Uh, there's a lot more social enterprise. But basically a not-for-profit is built on the idea that um, they will generate some kind of social good, um, social or environmental uh, benefit. Um, so the way that they do that is they incorporate, uh, and the rules are different state by state, province by province in different countries, but generally the nonprofits are governed by a board of directors. And those are volunteers. Uh, in some cases they are paid. Um, it's a myth that boards of directors can never be paid. In some cases they are. Um, but there's strict rules around that. So they're responsible for governing the organization. And that's sort of high-level oversight, direction setting, ensuring effective senior leadership, risk management, the very high-level governance aspects. Then below that, uh, if we see it as a hierarchy, though it not always is, is uh, the management of the organization. And then there's the delivery of programs and services. But nonprofit organizations are kind of all over the place on how they organize these different functions. So, you know, in the province where I live, 70% of nonprofit organizations have what we call working boards, where the work of the organization is done by the volunteer board of directors. They have no paid staff. On the other hand, there are many large nonprofits and charities that have a lot of paid staff, in which case the board of directors generally um, limits itself to governance work and doesn't get involved in management and operations. So, hmm. Interesting. Part of the reason that I'm asking this is that many graduates, particularly graduates who have done something like a PhD, where they're really passionate about the work that they're doing and they've really invested a lot in thinking through ideas, are excited about the concept of working in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, 
but they ha don't necessarily have a lot of experience in that sector or a lot of knowledge of the nuances within it. So if I'm a recent graduate looking to get into the not-for-profit space, what kind of advice would you give me in terms of trying to figure out where to enter? That's a great question. And what I would say is that um, one of the best ways, uh, and I don't know if people always want to hear this, but is volunteering. And volunteering with the board of directors is a great way to learn how those organizations work. Um, mm. And that's a great entry point, actually. And that's, you know, in many ways, the way I learned about nonprofit organizations was I served on boards of directors. And I saw some of these things from that level. I've never been a staff person at a not-for-profit. I've only worked on boards of directors. And I continue to serve on boards of directors. And that's part of my ongoing education, I believe. Um, so I think that's a really good entry point. Um, and to volunteer with organizations in other ways, actually. So boards of directors is only one place, uh, one volunteer opportunity. There are other ways as well. Um, and that's a great place to start. Great. Thank you. Uh, and having worked with so many different not-for-profit organizations, could you give us a sense of the spectrum of organizational cultures that you've seen in these different mission-driven groups? Yeah, that is, um, there's a great variety of different cultures, you know, and I mentioned, um, you know, sometimes we talk about hierarchy in organizations, but many organizations are a much flatter uh, organization, and you see this in business as well. Um, but it's challenging for organizations, given their governance structures, um, to flatten sometimes. Um, some organizations uh, are actually governed by not just a board of directors, but they invite governance participation by their entire membership. So we do see some highly democratic organizations hmm. um, that involve members broadly in major organizational decisions that gets like all democracy, it gets a little bit messier, it looks a little bit more chaotic or it's more time consuming. Um, but in many ways, some of our, our governance structures and the way we've designed these things in not-for-profit is borrowed from the corporate sector for better or for worse. Um, and I think we're trying to overcome some of those. So I participate in a peer network called Reimagining Governance where we're really trying to uh, explore ways to expand our ideas of governance and particularly around distributed governance, so involving more people in decision-making. But organizations are all over the place uh, on this very issue. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of the not-for-profit sector is made up of very small community-based organizations led by a small group of dedicated volunteers that are actually very, very in touch with the community issues they're trying to solve. Um, but then it runs up to very large um, multi-million dollar charities um, that have massive budgets and massive staffs and massive operations. Interesting. So one of the reasons that I've been so excited to talk to you in this interview, and one of the things that I think will really benefit our listeners is that you've worked this crossover between not-for-profit and industry. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what the interaction between private and not-for-profit organizations is like. And maybe we could start with when you, as a member of a private organization, come into a not-for-profit and help them with their strategic planning, what does that look like? What is What does a typical meeting have the shape of? 
Well, that's a great question. And, and I think that I work a lot with my clients on uh, meeting design. So before, you know, I go into uh, a group situation where we're going to talk about some high level strategy, uh, I put a lot of effort into dealing with a client on designing an agenda and basically figuring out what are the questions I'm going to be asking. Um, there's, a, there's an important approach that, that guides a lot of our work called appreciative inquiry. And, and part of the important concepts there are that the questions we ask determine the results we get. Um, so I put a lot of energy into figuring out what those questions are. Um, and then, so I work with groups, I ask them questions, uh, I facilitate a process where, you know, it's, you might have images of getting down into breakout groups, groups and do, using sticky notes and all of that kind of stuff. And it's really an exercise in um, generating ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, and then part two of, of planning or decision making is then um, selecting options. So there's sometimes we talk about this divergent thinking process where we're generating ideas and options, and then the convergent thinking process where we're uh, choosing options. And those are two different kinds of facilitation. The first is about brainstorming, uh, and it's a very creative process. And the second one is really about evaluating ideas. So they require two different kinds of thinking, and I think they require two different kinds of facilitation as well. That makes a lot of sense. That's that's really helpful. So building on some of the work that you've done and some of the things that we've talked about in the past, I wonder if we could explore other kinds of thinking, specifically this idea of scarcity versus abundance thinking. I know as a person who's worked with many, many kinds of organizations in many different capacities, you have a unique perspective on this. So could you first tell us what scarcity and abundance thinking are? Yeah, the basics of, of this are that scarcity thinking is really looking at, um, it's coming from a place of thinking there is not enough, um, and that could be time, money, people, um, a focus on deficits and gaps, and that generates uh, a sort of competitive spirit. Um, you know, anytime, you know, you're inspired by scarcity, then you become competitive but it also, in some cases, creates risk aversion, fear of change. Um, and then on the other hand, the abundance thinking is about thinking there is uh, enough to go around. Uh, and maybe there's even infinite potential. Um, and it's a focus on strengths and assets. It's a much more, it inspires more collaboration hmm. rather than competition. Uh, and it's about embracing and leading change. And this is an important concept, I think, for me, because in my work as a self-employed person, both in business and serving nonprofits, I've taken an abundant thinking approach, which means that I will talk widely about my ideas. I will share my knowledge with others. I'm not afraid of them stealing them. Um, and I will collaborate widely. And I think that that approach has helped me. Could you give us an example of an, an idea that you've shared and how that's worked for you? Yeah, so I've, I generate in my strategic planning work, I generate certain kind of frameworks um, for exploring certain ideas, um, especially sort of graphic representations that, that help inspire certain kinds of thinking. I will share those with other consultants that I know and, and encourage them to use them. Um, and I don't ask for credit. Um, and I'm happy to do that uh, because I think that that kind of approach comes back to help you. 
it inspires a sort of spirit of collaboration. Um, I do the work that I do in part because it has social benefit. Um, I'm not, I'm not interested in sort of hoarding my ideas or hoarding my tools and making sure only I benefit from them. Uh, I really sort of have this idea that um, uh, they're for the benefit of all. Um, so it's important for me to share those things. And, and I engage in communities of practice and communities of practice for consultants um, can be a little bit hit and miss because there is competition among consultants in some ways. And so some of them hesitate to, to be too open about their, what's in their, in their bag of tricks, but I'm happy to share. And so how does that work? If you are coming to a community of practice of consultants, let's say, and Actually, maybe let's pause there. Could you define community of practice for us? What do you see a community of practice being? Yeah, the way I see a community of practice is a group of peers or colleagues, professional colleagues, who get together to share good practices um, and ideas for doing the work well. And support, and, and invariably, there's some, some measure of uh, emotional support there. Hmm. That's... That's interesting. I think I think for some of the best ones, there certainly is. Uh, so one of my questions about uh, your point about scarcity versus abundance thinking, one of the things that uh, we talk a lot about in the development of the programs that we're doing here at HICMA and also in the way that we're thinking about helping PhDs translate their research and communication skills to new contexts is this idea of testing and particularly testing ideas in small incremental ways so that you're getting that early feedback. And for me, abundance thinking is a big part of that. You know, you and I never would have had the conversations that we've had in the past that have so informed a lot of my thinking around my work if I had said, I'm not going to share my idea with every, anyone until it's absolutely ready, right? I'm not going to share my idea with anyone until it's totally polished and ready to launch because I don't want anyone to see it. Um, but when you're coming to one of these communities of practice and you're coming to it with this approach of, I'm going to share What's the dynamic like when there are people who are holding their cards a little closer to the vest or being a little bit more competitive about it? Does that disadvantage you or does it matter at all? I don't think it disadvantages me. Um, I, don't, I don't get too worked up when someone takes a different approach. And if they take what I do and, and they use it for their own benefit, I'm fine with that. Because I think that fundamentally in a lot of the work that I do, it's very relationship-based. So people are not necessarily hiring me because of that one little useful tool that I use in the sessions. Uh, it's because I've built trust with them and they have faith in me um, and trust in me as a consultant. And so that can't be freely shared and traded and, and passed on. Uh, that's something that's cultivated. So, I'm, so in that sense, I'm not afraid of, of the competition because it's all relational. And uh, there's also the important idea about fit. I might not be the right consultant for every organization. Uh, and I'm happy to refer people on to a consultant who I think would be a better fit. And, and that idea of fit could be, there could be a lot of different things wrapped up in that. Um, but it's an important one. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And that's something I think that applies to all kinds of private businesses. If you're a freelance writer and someone asks you to do a project that really isn't in your wheelhouse, it's of more benefit for you to refer that to a colleague who might 
throw you some business that's not in their wheelhouse later than to try to do a job that isn't something you're going to be able to deliver on well or to use that as an opportunity to build a partnership with another business owner. Um, Are there differences, do you think, in the way that scarcity versus abundance thinking applies in the private sector versus the not-for-profit sector and potentially versus government? I'm sh- I want to say yes, I'm sure there are differences, though I haven't thought about it enough to articulate it clearly. <laughs> but I think that, I mean, a lot of the for-profit world is, is built around the idea of scarcity, that, you know, in a particular market, there is finite demand for a product. And if there are three companies trying to sell the same type of product, they're competing in a finite market. Um, one of the things I like about not-for-profit is that to me, it's a very creative, creating social benefit in the world uh, is limitless in many ways. So, you know, I serve on the board of a small organization called Kamloops Society for the Written Arts. We host author talks and we do workshops for writers and we host a writer's festival. The sky's the limit as far as what we want to dream up and try doing. Um, and so that's one of the things I like about the not-for-profit is that we're creating social benefit. And I don't think there's any natural limits to social benefit, but there perhaps are on the other side of the economic house in the for-profit world in terms of market demand. Hmm. Here's an interesting question that I think is an undercurrent to many conversations about where people want to go with their careers when they graduate. What do you see as the role of money in driving social change? That's a really hard question. Hmm. I think, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about that, especially given the, um, the experience of the past two years in, in our society. I have this feeling that we might at some point give up on the myth of perpetual growth, um, that things are either growing or dying. Hmm. Um, and I, I'm hopeful about that. Um, but that, that relates to the role of money because I think that uh, generating money uh, is not necessarily the goal of a lot of activities. I think the money is a tool to create other benefits. And one of one of the things that it's kind of a hobby horse of mine and, and my colleagues are tired of hearing me talk about it, but I don't even like talking about the nonprofit sector because that's defining our sector in, in two ways. One, in economic terms and two, in negative terms. So hmm. when we call our sector the nonprofit sector, we're defining it by the fact that it doesn't generate a profit. Interesting. And I think that's very limiting. In our entire sort of narrative about our sector and the advocacy work we do, I wish we could reframe it and talk about the social benefit. And so there are, you know, sometimes I'll talk about it as the social sector. Uh, in the UK, sometimes they'll say civil society. Um, there's a movement to call it the third sector. I like all of them, as long as we're not kind of reinforcing what I see as a false economic binary, binary that there's for-profit and non-profit. And naturally and intuitively, people will think that for-profit is somehow more productive than non-profit. 
because it seems to imply no profit. Um, so the role of money in that, I think, um, you know, and we see this sometimes too when we talk about government support for nonprofits. Um, sometimes people will talk about handouts and on an individual level or an organizational level. When they come to the corporate world, they talk about bailouts. It's a subtle sort of difference in language, but there's a lot of judgment there. Hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, the nonprofit sector is is contracted by the government to deliver essential services. Um, we don't often use the same economic metrics to measure the nonprofit sector. Uh, many people aren't aware of exactly how many jobs it creates or the purely economic benefit, not to mention the social benefit, which is hard to quantify. There are attempts. There is an approach called social return on investment that uses proxy measures to try and put a dollar figure on the social benefit. Um, but those are pretty fuzzy, not necessarily widely accepted. But I think the role of money uh, is to enable social benefit. Uh, and I think that's the ultimate purpose. Hmm. And how do you see the role of private organizations in this ecosystem? Private organizations can uh, produce social benefit as well. And this is where we see a lot of crossover um, initiatives. We see social enterprise, for example. Um, there's a big push for uh, things that generate revenue and produce social benefit. Can you give us uh, some examples? Yeah, I mean, your local thrift store uh, that's run by maybe the Hospital Foundation or the Salvation Army is a social enterprise. Um, it's producing, it's selling goods uh, to funnel those, those monies into social benefit. And some of them do that by just funneling money towards uh, a social purpose organization. Some of them do it by providing employment to people that the organization serves. Um, but there's even more uh, complex social enterprises um, that are, you know, many of them, for example, in agriculture, um, that are, say, employing people who may be difficult to employ um, and at the same time uh, working the land and, and selling produce. Um, these things have many benefits, uh, social, economic, uh, and it, it may be easier to see them because they, they look like businesses. Um, but that said, many nonprofit organizations, more than people realize, they rely on earned revenue. They have program fees. They run events and they charge for tickets. Um, this is very businesslike in the sense that it's they're earning revenue. So, so not all nonprofits, you know. There's there's a few myths. You know, sometimes we people who haven't seen the inside of nonprofits much assume that they're run on either government contracts or government grants or private foundation grants. Uh, it's much more common for them to have earned revenue and to be functioning a little bit more like businesses. Hmm. And so then what do you think is the, I'm trying to think of, so if you're calling it the social sector, what would you call an organization within the social sector? Would you call it a social organization instead of a nonprofit or not-for-profit? That's a good question. I think the social sector or civil society or the third sector, I mean, there's a lots of different kinds of organizations we might put into that category. Uh, 
you know, you'll hear the difference between nonprofit and not-for-profit sometimes. Um, not all nonprofits are charities. Charity is a, um, a status with federal regulators um, in both the, the, the U.S. and Canada that gives them the ability to issue tax receipts for donations. Nonprofit societies that are not charities cannot issue tax receipts. So that broad category of social sector includes nonprofits as well as charities, but it also includes cooperatives, hmm. um, which are member-run organizations. Um, it also uh, includes social enterprise, which we've mentioned, um, but also some community organizations that maybe don't have any legal status at all. Um, and there are some neighborhood associations that are not incorporated, um, but they, they produce social benefit, um, but they don't have a legal sort of status. Mm -hmm. And where would you put foundations in this system? Yeah, foundations uh, would be in there as well. Um, and some of the foundations function as charities. So they collect monies, they issue tax receipts, and then they disperse those monies uh, to other organizations. Um, so there are private foundations and then there are public foundations. So there's, there's fuzzy lines in there. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm interested in trying to peel back in this conversation is this idea that people are coming out trying to drive social change. They want to find work that is, you know, possibly lucrative, but I would say for a lot of people who have dedicated their lives to learning, finding something meaningful that is really making a difference is important as long as you're able to, you know, live a healthy life and sustain your family um, and do all the things that you want to do without having to worry about your finances. So for many people, the goal is to drive change in a way that is, you know, personally and for your family and financially sustainable, but also doing good. And I suppose my question is, I think many people assume that doing good means going into the not-for-profit or social sector. How would you advise someone whose driver in their career search is to find work where they can really make a difference? I would say that the not-for-profit world is a wonderful place to find meaning, meaningful work, but I wouldn't say it's the only place. And I think that the, the business world is a lot more open. Um, there's a lot of young businesses and, and older, bit more mature organizations too, that um, talk quite authentically uh, about social impact. And this has changed a lot in, in the past several years. Um, so I don't think you need to go into not-for-profit. Um, in the tech world, there are social startups, um, startup companies that have a, an explicitly um, social purpose. Um, it, I mean, yes, they're designed to achieve profits as well, um, but a part of their DNA as an organization is producing some benefit to society. So I think there are options there. Um, and I don't think that uh, people need to commit to a life of penury if they want to have meaning. I don't think that's always a trade-off. Um, <laughs> my hope is that that improves in the future as, as the nonprofit world becomes more, um, more understood and, and more appealing to, to a lot of different people. But I think you can find meaning in, in the private sector. You can find it in the nonprofit sector. Uh, you can probably find it in the government sector as well, though I have no firsthand experience there. Hmm. And so while we're on this 
topic, are there any myths that you would want to debunk about the not-for-profit sector or the nonprofit sector or the social sector, whatever we choose to call it? Yeah, where do I start? Um, there are <laughs> lots of myths, I think. Um, one of them is there are some myths around financial mismanagement. Um, and in my experience, the not-for-profit world is really, really good at stretching a dollar. Um, actually, they know how to do it better than anybody. Because one of the things about not-for-profit funding models is there are diverse rev sources of revenue, but a lot of them rely on uh, foundation or government grants or government contracts that are sometimes that are not necessarily multi-year agreements. So a lot of nonprofits uh, significant they have staff or programs that depend on contracts being renewed year after year. There's a lot of uncertainty in that. Um, and there's lots of situations where a, an organization doesn't get a contract renewed and, and suddenly an entire program and some staff disappear. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty there. So I think there's a lot of resilience and ingenuity in nonprofit because of that uncertainty. Um, still, I, I wouldn't want to keep that uncertainty <laughs> just to inspire ingenuity. Um, but the myth around financial mismanagement, you know, one of the things I hear, for example, is that um, if you donate to a charity, uh, you're going to line the pockets of one of the charity's executives. There are, there are examples uh, where an organization's administrative costs or overhead or executive pay um, consume an unreasonable amount of the budget. Those are not common examples. Those are anomalies. And in most cases, um, the people I know who work in, in, in finance and work deeply with nonprofits say that we actually need to invest more in administrative systems and overhead for nonprofits so that they can increase their impact. So, I mean, I see, I see things about, oh, sure, 80% of what you give to United Way will go to the CEO and, and all those things. A lot of those are, that's not simply not true. Accredited organizations and accredited charities are required to keep their administrative costs to certain certain maximums, um, and those are not very high at all. So that's a that's a huge myth about um, uh, on the financial side of nonprofit, um, which I would like to see overturned. Hmm. And so, speaking to that ingenuity and resilience piece that you mentioned, that is so critical to the societal or not-for-profit or non-profit sector. What do you think are some of the roles that are most valuable in this space right now? What are the skills that serve this sector best? That's a big question, but I think that there's uh, a lot of need for leadership skills uh, and management skills. Um, and I don't necessarily mean the kinds of leadership and management skills you get from an MBA program. Um, as I mentioned, uh, a, there are a lot of organizations with people in leadership positions with um, arts backgrounds or academic backgrounds. Um, they need generalist skills in many cases, uh, creative thinking, uh, communication skills are an enormous one. A lot of nonprofits are understaffed or under capacity in the communications department. So, um, for them to have people who are skilled at communication is really valuable. Uh, hmm. So those are some of, some of the skills I think that are important. 
but then also this some of the strategic thinking skills and this is where i've found a place in my work um, connecting ideas across domains uh, connecting organizations with each other um, some of these things and these are the skills i think that will never be automated or outsourced i think that's really helpful so you're a consultant working Advantage, which is a nonprofit. Maybe one question then is how would you define a consultant? Consultants can look so different. What do you see that title meaning? That's a really good question. And I think for many years I was not completely comfortable with the word consultant because I felt that it could mean anything or nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, also some of my discomfort was the fact that in the business world, sometimes management consultants uh, are not, they get a little bit of a bad rap sometimes. And there are plenty of jokes about management consultants and people question their usefulness. So I was a little uncomfortable with the term consultant for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm better with it now because I, I think that there are many problems that organizations face that they don't necessarily have the perspective within their organization they need to break through on that problem. Um, sometimes they need expert opinion. Um, and it's taken me a while to be comfortable with the idea of being and giving expert opinion. Hmm. Um, but there's different levels of consulting. So, Sometimes I get an engagement where all someone wants is facilitation. They're not looking for my ideas or my advice on anything. They just need me to steer a process and get them, get them to a certain place. In other cases, people want me to uh, advise them on ways to do things. So there's really different, different relationships within that consulting relationship, depending on how, how much advice people want and how, how light of a touch you're required to take. Uh, but it takes a while, I think, to get there and to get comfortable with that. Um, but I think that, you know, so in the past, I often wanted to refer to myself as a facilitator because I didn't want to pretend I could give advice on things that I wasn't intimately knowledgeable about. Um, but so a consultant is everything but nothing. It's basically a third party that can come in and offer you perspective or facilitation uh, or steer you toward resources. So a lot of what I do is I go to an organization, I talk with them about the things that they're facing, and I go out and I find the people and the resources that will help them. So in mm -hmm. some cases, it's not me. It's not me who's helping them. It's just connecting them with things. Mm -hmm. uh, my work is all over the place. So um, in some cases, I have a client that I talked with this morning that I'm helping them on policy development. Um, so I meet with a group, uh, their policy committee. I find out what the guiding principles are that they need their, their policy to sort of uh, abide by. I look at examples. I look at what they have already, and I draft new policy for them. And I go back to them and say, does this look like it's going to serve your purposes? How can I revise it? Hmm. So that's part of consulting too. And you can see from, from doing work like that, how those skills of writing, um, 
understanding ideas and connecting ideas and research are perfectly applicable. That sounds like really interesting work, and that makes a lot of sense. I It strikes me that one of the undercurrents of consulting that you have a high level of very nuanced experience with is giving and receiving feedback. So I wonder if you might leave us with a few pointers about how to offer feedback in a constructive way and also how to hear things that might be critical of, of your approach. You know, that's, it's something I've thought a lot about. I was a teacher too. So I, feedback is something that we need to learn how to give and take well. Um, and I think there's this idea of um, radical candor. Uh, and someone wrote a book about it um, and you can Google it and find out. But basically if you do things with a high level of directness but also a high level of caring, you are in a space of radical candor uh, and it produces the best outcomes. Mm. Um, if you deliver feedback or ideas very directly, but with a low level of caring, the outcomes are not as good. Um, so I think that, you know, one of the role of empathy is really important in feedback. I'm very fortunate because I'm working with organizations that are trying to make social good in the world. And I care about them deeply. And so I find that for me, if I give them input or feedback and it's done with a high level of caring, um, it's taken generally very well. Uh, in some cases too, I find that my duty is not just to the egos in the room, but, and I've had conversations with consultants about who we serve. If we have, for example, someone in an organization has hired me and they really want me to advance their particular position in the organization and there's some factionalism the question becomes who does the consultant serve hmm. and what I've resolved on is that I actually serve their constitutional purpose um, hmm. and it's my duty to actually help them achieve their mission regardless of what the particular individuals feel there's a higher purpose there for me um, and that's important uh, and that means that sometimes I do have to deliver kind of tough feedback, um, but I try and keep my eye on the fact that I'm uh, increasing the effectiveness of the organization. I'm increasing social good, uh, and that's how I have to do it. But I have to do it with caring or it doesn't work. Uh, and relationship is, is so important uh, in those things. So I spend a lot of time in my consulting just listening before I give too much advice to anybody. In terms of accepting feedback, uh, you know, again, it's not about me. Uh, I'm there to serve. And in many ways, I take a very um, service-based approach to my work. Um, so if it helps me do that better, uh, I'm happy to receive it. So hmm. Sounds like there's a lot of resilience involved in that part of the job, too. There is, yeah. <laughs> I, work, I work hard at it. Um, so I'm keen to do a good job. Good. Well, and I'm sure that you do. Um, we're, we're just about wrapping up the end of our time. Is there anything else that you would want to address? Anything I haven't asked that you would want to answer? You know, one of the things I think, I came out of school, out of university. I think I really believed that it was all about my intellect. Uh, I felt it was about how smart I was. That's what would get me to where I wanted to go. 
I think I learned very quickly that that's not the case. Um, intellect is definitely important, but there's a kind there's kinds of emotional intelligence and social intelligence that I discovered are fundamental, uh, and that I can't put my intellectual tools uh, or parts of my brain to work unless I've built a relationship. Um, so that was a, that was a big eye-opening thing for me when I came came into the world out of university. I, I didn't really realize that. So that was an important piece of learning. Thank you. I think I think that's really insightful advice to end on, and we really appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, thank you for joining us, JP. This was this was excellent, and I'm sure our listeners will get a lot of value out of hearing this conversation. So thanks, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Erica. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Hikma Collective podcast. I'm your host, Erica Makalak, writer, medievalist, and founder of Hikma. The production of this episode was led by our fearless creative director, Sophia Van Hees, in collaboration with Nicole Marklind, Dashara Green, Eufemia Baldassare, and Matthew Tomkinson. Matthew composed the original music you hear now in his capacity as the 2022 Hikma Artist in Residence. This podcast has been made possible with generous support from Innovate BC, Tech Nation, and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. You can find show notes, links, and transcripts at www.hikma.studio slash podcast. Hikma is situated on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Hunkamedum-speaking Musqueam people. We are grateful to be here and to share this space with you. Our speakers, team members, and listeners are based all over the world, and wherever you're listening, we encourage you to learn more about whose lands you're on. 